Welcome to the ProRata Podcast, a podcast that takes 10 minutes to get you smarter on the collision of tech, business, and politics. Filling in for Dan Primack, I'm Kim Hart. On today's show, Facebook's latest headache coming out of the UK and a day of remembrance for former President George H.W. Bush. But first, how the digital divide is shaping childhood. It's no secret that high-speed internet service has become a necessity for modern life, and there are well-known chasms between the haves and have-nots when it comes to broadband access. There is the geographic divide, in which rural areas have few options, or none at all, because it doesn't make financial sense for the big internet service providers to invest in that infrastructure. And there is the economic divide, in which broadband access is available, but low-income families simply can't afford to pay for the connectivity or the computers or smartphones needed to use it. What's especially troubling is how these persistent divides are impacting the next generation. Today's toddlers, schoolchildren, and teenagers have never known a world without the internet, and the internet plays a central role in how they socialize, learn, and eventually earn a living. For example, 12 million school-age kids do not have reliable enough broadband access at home to complete their homework. According to the Pew Research Center, 35% of teens say they at least sometimes rely on their cell phone to finish their homework. That number jumps to nearly half of teens in low-income households. But broadband access can be a double-edged sword. Smartphones and data plans have become affordable enough to open up new opportunities to children in less affluent families. In fact, kids in lower-income communities also tend to spend more time on their devices. And as the debate over how much screen time is appropriate for children, there is a concern that children who rely more on smartphones may be more vulnerable to the negative impacts of technology. In 15 seconds, we'll go deeper on this with Axios editor Meg Marco. But first, this. Axios Chief Technology Correspondent Ina Fried shares breaking news and analysis on the most consequential companies and players in tech, from the Valley to D.C. Subscribe to get smarter faster at signup.axios.com. And now, back to the ProRata Podcast. Joining us in the studio is Meg Marco, who edited an Axios Deep Dive report on the digital divide. Thank you so much for being here, Meg. Thanks for having me. So let's start with the so-called homework gap. Is this becoming a bigger problem for teachers and students? I mean, I think it is, right? So if you if you think about broadband access versus broadband adoption, what you're finding is that less than one-fifth of Americans live in a neighborhood where at least 80% of the residents actually have broadband. And so it's really kind of an invisible divide. So, you know, you'll have teachers that are assigning homework, but they might not know who has internet and who doesn't. And so as we just sort of assume that it's available, this can cause problems for students who are in low-income households, and they may not have access or are dependent on smartphones for their homework. So we assume that more urban students are more connected because there are more options there. There's more incentive for big ISPs to build out their networks there. But what you found is that this is more of an income divide, and that cuts across geographic areas, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're going to find that in the rural areas. You're going to find that in the urban areas. And you're not always going to know that it's there. Right. And so that's an extra challenge for teachers who are trying to make sure everyone has a level playing field and making sure that they have the opportunities available from broadband, but they're not quite sure who actually has the capacity to complete the assignments. Exactly. So the flip side of access is this new division that we'll call the screen time divide. This is where there is sort of a backlash against the constant use of devices by more affluent families. Does that mean that some kids are actually better off if they don't have as much access? It's kind of ironic. It is. And I think the interesting part of that is that when you look at who is most concerned about this, you'll often find that they have themselves been involved in creating these products. So one of the people that we talked to was Hunter Walk, who spent a decade at YouTube. And he says that his daughter goes days without any screen time, but also says the focus should be on quality content and quality engagements with the phone. And you'll find that that's actually a pretty common 
refrain that it's less about technology being inherently bad for children. It's operating at a level where there's much more access. Across the board, parents want to help kids find balance, especially as children widen their use of technology as they grow up. Digital literacy skills are extremely important. The lower income the family, the more likely the kids are to be dependent on a smartphone to do their homework assignments. And so you don't want to necessarily say technology across the board is bad for students. You want to help them find balance and make sure that the time they spend with these devices is productive for them. Right. So the consensus is kind of emerging. What's more important is what the kids are doing on these devices and with this access uh, once they have it. Not a question of whether access itself is bad. (laughs) We we want them to have the opportunities, but also be smart enough to know what the best opportunities are and how to grab them. But that brings up, I guess, another question about access to information. As the internet has also upended business models of local media companies, the media landscape has created this kind of new information divide that was part of what we also reported, whereas companies are going more to streaming, more paywalls are coming up to try to make revenue to support local business and uh, local news companies. What does that mean for just how available information is to not only kids, but to their parents as well? Definitely. So this is a really interesting kind of divide. It's basically a divide that's the intersection of what's happening with the media landscape with the rural broadband deployment issue. So as national and cable broadcast networks focus on streaming technology, you have rural America with less access to high-speed internet. And that's creating a really interesting and problematic situation. The other thing is that media economics favor are favoring scale. And so local outlets are either shutting down, you have 500 newspapers shutting down, and the newspapers that remain are often held by large holding companies. And the emphasis for them is on stories that will bring in a much larger national audience. And so you see that only 17% of local news stories are actually local. And so the combination of it's more difficult for people to access the information and also that the information is actually less likely to be focused on their actual communities, you're leading to sort of an information inequality, sort of an information, news and information desert within smaller communities. And this all together feels sort of bleak, right? So do you see a strategy emerging to tackle any or all of these divides? They're all different in scope and have to be tackled kind of at an individual level sometimes, but also may require a national strategy. But do you see one emerging? Well, I think that's a really good question because it seems to me and to others that have studied the situation, that the focus broadly at the national level is really on the deployment and less on adoption. So what that means is that to the extent that we have a national strategy for this problem, it's not as focused on the income gap, the income divide, and more focused on whether or not high-speed broadband is actually available. So I think in order for us to have a strategy that's holistic, we are going to have to focus more on how available this really truly is for all Americans, regardless of their income. Right. And that's going to be another challenge when we get into the age of 5G as those networks start to roll out, as they're only going to high profit margin areas like urban areas and may not be accessible device-wise for a long time. It makes economic sense for 5G deployment to go to the places that were already making economic sense before for wired broadband. Right. And there aren't strong reasons why that won't be the way that this is rolled out. So this does, I think, represent a moment for us to think about that and to say, what are the solutions that might not replicate the problems that we're seeing right now? Right, exactly. Meg Marco, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. 
Axios gives you the news and analysis you need to get smarter faster on the most important topics. In our unique smart brevity format, we cover topics from politics to science and media to tech. Subscribe to get smarter faster at signup.axios.com. And now back to the ProRata podcast. Now it's time for my final two. First, internal Facebook documents released Wednesday by a British lawmaker portrayed a social giant as considering aggressive strategies for squeezing more revenue out of user data, protect its relationships with major companies, and undermine its competitors. Why it matters. There aren't a lot of surprises here, as a lot of what's in the documents has already been reported. What's more interesting is the fact that the Member of Parliament, Damien Collins, released them, unredacted and against Facebook's wishes. Collins has tried unsuccessfully to get Mark Zuckerberg to appear before his committee. Facebook is now in a war with the foreign government, which could well have been avoided if Zuckerberg had been more cooperative. Second, today is one of those rare days in a nation's life when we turn our attention in the same direction to celebrate the life of President George Herbert Walker Bush. The federal government is closed today as dignitaries from all over the world gather at National Cathedral to remember the 41st president. It's the first time all five living U.S. presidents have been together since President Trump's inauguration, and Trump will not speak during the service, a break from tradition. But today isn't about our living presidents. It's about remembering the accomplishments, dedication, and kind spirit of a man who's played an enormous role in this country's history. And we're done. My thanks to producers Adam Gracia and Tim Shovers. As Dan would say, have a great International Ninja Day. Dan will be back on the mic tomorrow with another Parada podcast.